Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When the war began, it was like a catalyst to, to where, where punk rock bands... New school, old school, mid school punk rock bands kind of demonstrated their vitality like nobody else. Welcome to Behind the Setlist, the podcast where artists tell the stories about the songs they perform live. I'm Jay Gilbert from Label Logic. And I'm Glenn Peoples from Billboard. In this episode, we talk to Eugene Hutz, the front man for the incredible band Gogo Bordello. You know, Jay, I think the best thing about Gogo Bordello is there's no other band like Gogo Bordello. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Uh, they are a force of nature. Um, Gogol comes from Nikolai Gogol, uh, a Ukrainian writer. It heavily influenced uh, Eugene and the band, and he sort of smuggled Ukrainian culture into Russian society, which Gogol Bordello intends to do you know, with their style of music in the uh, English-speaking world. We talked to Eugene about a documentary about the band that came out earlier this year called Scream of My Blood. A very good look at uh, the band and its upbringing, his upbringing, his roots in Ukraine, uh, his musical roots. Very interesting stuff, and you really get a sense of how the band came to be. You know, we talked a lot about, you know, in particular, a Sonic Youth show in Kiev that he went to and a lot of people in the music scene back then went to that he described as a pivotal moment. Yeah, you're right. It's an amazing documentary. Here's the description uh, of the documentary that I read online. It said, spanning the final days of the Soviet Union all the way to pre-9-11 New York and ending with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Scream of My Blood, is as much about how the world shaped Google Bordello as how the band shaped the world. Last year, the band released their ninth studio album, Solidarity, and earlier this year, they released a benefit single for Ukraine called United Strike Back, and in November, the band relaunched his Casa Gogo Records uh, with a single collaboration with Bernard Sumner of New Order, Joy Division fan. Yeah, and without further ado, here's Eugene Hutz with Gogol Bordello behind the set list. Let it roll. Eugene, thanks for joining us on Behind the Set List. Yeah, hell yeah. Likewise, thank you for having me. There we go. You know, we watched the the documentary Scream of My Blood recently. Um, All right. 
And I imagine that filming for that began before the war in Ukraine with Russia. Um, it began about 15 years ago. So before. <laughs> to say at least, at least. And uh, there was, wasn't actually filming for documentary. It was just a very close friend of ours traveling along with a, with a crew and going to, you know, Latin America with us and, you know, Israel, other places, just going around the world with us, you know, and experiencing touring as part of the crew. You know, as a band, kind of kept uh, you know, expanding and building, and and becoming a globe uh, tro trotting you know, band uh, beyond you know New York cities. There's so much footage in that in that film. Was that a, a member of the road crew or just a, a friend going along filming you as you toured? Uh, Nate Bummer is a professional videographer. And he's been actually involved with quite a few cool projects, you know, with Kim Gordon's documentary and uh, many things for Vice, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I met him as a video director for a friend of mine for this punky band from uh, from Vermont, actually, all the way back from there. And, uh, you know, we got introduced and then when I moved to the city, he started coming, checking out uh, Google Bordello and kind of became, a, you know, a, a secret member of the band, <laughs> you know, with, with a camera in the hands. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get that sort of footage uh, unless you're kind of embedded uh, with the group. Absolutely. And the best part about it is that it wasn't supposed to be any kind of documentary. I mean, that agenda usually already kills the vibe, you know. Is one of my favorite documentaries of all times is a '91 Year Punk Broke. Yeah, uh, features Sonic Youth and Nirvana and uh, Dinosaur Jr. and Babes in Toyland. They're there. Um, uh, a couple, a couple other bands. There's Iggy appearance in there. Yeah. Uh, and the thing about it is that from the makers of the film, the maker of well, them. Chiefly, I think it was basically shot by Thurston. You know, he was like, he was made for absolutely no reason. Like, it was before Nirvana hit it big time. And therefore, everybody had this inner freedom to basically, you know, be who they are and be as eccentric and flamboyant as they please and yeah. just cause chaos, you know, <laughs> bring additional chaos to the world. Sonic Youth was very influential to a lot of bands, and I don't think they get the credit for that. Uh, I've read that the reason that Nirvana wanted to sign with DGC Records is because that was a label that had Sonic Youth. Absolutely. I was following all those events pretty closely because, to me, Sonic Youth is a definite uh, influence, and everyone in my circle of friends, you know, I'm, we can't even think about New York City without Sonic Youth, you know. Um, so I'm firmly <laughs> part of the part of the crew that where that Sonic Youth is heavily credited and continues to be credited. Especially that the very fact that I, I live in New York City is connected to Sonic Youth. I mean, I saw them their very uh, their one and only ever show in Ukraine, and when I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. 
and it completely blew my mind. And um, I was like, I got to go where that music is coming from. And that music is coming from New York City. So, you know, just a couple of years later, I was here. What did th what did that do to the underground music scene in Ukraine when the people who saw that Sonic Youth show? What were the after effects? So exactly, there is a a little documentary about alternative music scene in Ukraine of that era, and literally ninety percent of people in that documentary have something to say about that show. Everybody went there to that concert to see this very obscure art band, art, art core band, you know, the, you know, as it was the first time I actually heard word hardcore. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, but on the top of that, they had this spin. The preview was that it's actually art core. It's hardcore, but it's art core. <laughs> And I was like, all right, we got to go and check this out. And everybody went there in a kind of clean slate in their mind. And um, what it did, it hypnotized people. I think they were in one of their peaks. I mean, you know, they had quite several peaks. And it was the Dream Nation era where they were kind of in their hardcore and hardcore phase. And the effect was just hypnotic. It was beyond people's kind of discussion. It was just like, you everybody, this is the revelation. This is a highly dissonant, yet very somehow pleasing to our distorted senses. <laughs> yeah. It seemed from watching that in the documentary, that was sort of a game changer. But you have a lot of different influences, and I think that's why your music doesn't sound like anything on the planet. You talk in the documentary about things like Black Sabbath and these metal bands and, you know, how great that was and what a great influence. But you also talk about yeah. Sonic Youth and punk bands. But I was reading this article the other day where you had cited, like, Jimi Hendrix and uh, Parliament. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, well, a lot. And it continues a lot going on because I, I for one reason or another, I've just always been kind of polyglotic about music even though I have my like strong anchors in music that are definitely more like definitive, definitive for me. Wait, mm -hmm. well, when I first moved to Lower East Side, you know, I started hearing Ragaton coming out of like, you know, cars and bodegas, you know, I lived on Ridge Street, Avenue C, Ridge Street house in that area. And uh, I was blown away by the power of that, uh, you know, just completely brutal, primitive uh, dance hall beat. That, but this with this, this was way before Daddy Yankee blew up and like became a thing. I'm talking mm -hmm. about like you know nine, 97, 96. I mean, there is always like all these things have something to offer. So you know, I just kind of ended up doing you know some some experiments even with that. You know, like mixing Balkan music with ragazzon and stuff like that as a DJ. So it's it's really kind of, you know, it's kind of you write your own symphony out of all these influences. And I also was extremely um, fortunate that my father was is the same way. So I picked up a lot from him, especially Jimi Hendrix and Parliament and all that. That was just 
my father's record collection back in Ukraine. And he's a musician too, right? Yeah. 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 So, you know, be, him being like a kind of guy who's always seeking out the latest vibration, you know, I grew up exposed to that, you know, it just was like, and his brother too, he's, he, he's a painter. So being babysat by a painter, you know, and I remember that, you know, being four or five, you know, six years old you know, in an art studio, you know, him and his friends, you know, long hair and pants covered in paint, paint, music playing, always either some prog rock, either something, either something, you know, extreme like Jimi Hendrix or one thing or another. But years later, after I, you know, got already into punk scene, where people were just very eclectic and listening from everything from GBH and Exploited and Verrukers to like, uh, you know, Joy Division and Kraftwerk. I, somebody gave me a tape with Kraftwerk and I was like, this is not new. This is like, I've heard it when I was like five years old and, and then retract back that, you know, my painter uncle was listening to Kraftwerk like 1990s, 1977 when I was tiny, you know, I was like, wow. This is a, they were really, really uh, spearheading all these musical influences and frequencies absorbing them. So that was, um, that was the situation. And I just followed into that footprint, you know. One of the bands you cover live is, is the punk band Fugazi. And in, in your recent show in DC, you played a snippet of Waiting Room. You covered Blueprint in the encore. And, and I'm wondering what is it about Fugazi that attracts you to them and, and is that something you learned about in the US or were you familiar with Fugazi back in the Ukraine? So Fugazi is also particularly in, influential. It's probably like, as I said, you know, one of those anchor influences. I arrived here and quickly was kind of befriended a whole crew of really awesome punk kids who I started traveling around seeing shows with them, you know, along East Coast, not only in, in Vermont, where I was originally, but, you know, going to Albany and, to, you know, seeing shows. And Fugazi absolutely just blew my mind because it was, it kind of was, became like my answer to everything for a long time because, because it was extremely polyglotic like that you know as a as a fan of like joy division and you know uh gang of four and uh you know and dub and 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 hardcore and hardcore you know sonic youth yeah i kind of so that this band is all of those things this is a real fusion that has that high adrenal uh charge and um and does have all those influences that are very European and American, but on like a really, really quintessential level. Like you could hear the Gang of Four and Joy Division and Sonic Youth in Fugazi, but made entirely their own, you know? And I thought that that was just the highest artistic accomplishment. And uh, you know, I consequently saw them about a dozen of times, you know? <laughs> That connection actually kept working because when we started to tour with Gogol Bordello, like on tiny, tiny tours, 
first touring. The first, some of the first people that came out, came backstage and surprised us with their appearance was, you know, Brandon and Guy, you know, and some years later, you know, Joe and, uh, and Ian. And so it's like that, that, that somehow world traveled to them that they got to check this vibe out. And, uh, you know, it's all come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe, Joe and Brandon were at this show, you know, and so I was like, that's why I covered several songs, you know, one, one for each, one for each. <laughs> Got it. So watching the documentary, there were so many things in there that were just joyous and so many things that were just, well, punk, like music on x-rays, which I had never heard about. And I just think that is so cool for our audience that's never heard of that before. Tell us a little bit about music on x-rays. Well, it's, I think that, um, yeah, for us, it was like a, such a commodity, really, because I, I wasn't the only kid in Kiev at the time who had a, a father who is pretty hip and into all that. There was not wasn't many, but it like, seems like we all knew each other. But amongst my friends, that was uh, a quite widespread thing. Since there was not a one single outlet in Soviet Union that could deliver you music that <laughs> you, you want, except for you know black market, you know, uh, which not a lot of people know their way to, you know, to, to these gatherings. You know, before that, uh, a way of having records was if you have a friend who works in a hospital and has access to X-rays which are essentially vinyl, you know, and you have another friend who works, say, in theater or in, in television that has phonograph recording the, 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 the trail cutting mechanism, you know, which is used for making soundtracks and radio programming, pre-recorded, all that kind of thing back then. So, you know, you, you put those two friends together and, you know, you, you heat the vinyl up of X-ray and they, so literally cut the record on this uh, just more fl flimsy vinyl, <laughs> which looks awesome and eccentric because it's like somebody's rib cage or somebody's, you know, uh, right. other part of the body. Uh, but it goes well if like it's a Black Sabbath record, especially, or, you know, Cure <laughs> or Bauhaus, you know, goes great together. Great look. And same time, their quality wasn't lasting. I mean, after about seven, eight, nine, ten listens, the quality would really go down because just needle eats that vinyl really, really fast. And uh, but you know, those things were kicking around, and uh, you know, curious like, what are they? You know, and my dad was like, well, that's when you were like two, three years old. That's how the records were. You know, yeah, very cool. You know, and uh, yeah, I think that. I did read some kind of hipster blog about it. So people somehow start finding out that that was the thing in Eastern Europe at the time, you know, which is kind of fascinating how, how, how much creativity people put in into getting around the, you know, all this idiotic uh, Soviet dictatorship regulations, you know. I got to admit, I have not been on eBay yet looking for those, but um, I'm, I'm going to do this after this conversation and see what pops up. 
I'm sure there are some. I'm sure there's somebody who's just busting my busting them out and claiming that they are a relic. <laughs> sure. So let's talk about your set list. And I'm wondering if there are songs that you think are kind of mainstays to a Gogo Bordello set list that you want to drop in a set every time that are your favorites or that are crowd favorites. That are both of those things. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, an, an advantage for the band to have like quite a few albums out and have a lot of crowd pleasers, you know, but at the same time, it, you know, there's a number of songs that people just demand <laughs> that you want to take a break from, <laughs> you know, and that people don't really believe me, but there was about four, three or four years where we played, we did not play Star Wars Purple at all. Like we just took a serious you know, detour from that song. And uh, it was just fine, you know, because it's a great song. You know, I'm glad people enjoy it. It's not my central fundamental, like, uh, you know, this is not what I would put in into Voyager, you know, if it, <laughs> if I need, if like that was a task mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, to represent Gogol Bordello in the Voyager. <laughs> it's a kind of um, the funny thing about that song is that it's very uh, underlooked in, in a way that, you know, it brings in like my favorite philosophers into the game. Michael Foucault and the Diogenes and um oh, it all from Diogenes to the Foucault from Lozhetskin to Passport. It is funny to me that Star Wars and Purple serves as kind of common denominator from all for all kind of different uh, pockets of Gogol Bordello fans because we have very diverse audiences, you know, you know Latin community, then you know the punk rock, old school, new school punk rock, you know people who just are kind of adventurous and you know more from or people from more like nick cave and the bad seeds and birthday party kind of world who are uh getting their vitamins and you know out of our music differently but that song just seems to kind of bring everybody together and at the same time the aspects of it that it's actually kind of brings in these characters is completely underlooked which is kind of was my main driving force like how do you bring like heavy uh you know analytical in information and references into something that's very uh jolly and kind of uh it, it, that was my idea of a party you know how do you you how do you keep it how, how do you kind of trigger off all these uh high, higher intellectual frequencies in the party setting you know yeah yeah what is that song about eugene and and why do you think people like that song so much um well it, it does roll off your tongue and it's one of the songs that wrote itself and uh, people can always tell that and there is quite a several songs that we have that you know every songwriter knows this and you know, every composer knows this some things just really write themselves in in 10 minutes like there seems to be almost zero effort behind it. 
And that ease is definitely a part of the charm of those kind of songs. And you can tell that probably, you know, the pixies, you know, with your feet in the air and your hand on the ground, that's probably came from that same portal. You know, it doesn't sound like it was labored and toiled uh, for too long. It's just, came as almost ready-made email, you know, mm-hmm. uh, although I might be wrong, but, and then there are songs that people really toil over and some of them are still become, you know, big songs. Um, but like, you know, I definitely toiled over Wanderlust King for about six months before it really became what it is. And I added that bridge kind of very symphonic, uh, swashbuckling, many chords out of nowhere coming into bridge that kind of takes that song out of this uh, kind of almost knucklehead kind of land, you know, at first, seemingly. That came almost basically at the last day like right before the recording just was like the song is still locking so there's a lot of a lot of uh labor that goes into that and in that sense and and made boiling down the lyrics uh you know so there's those two distinctly ways two distinctly different ways of writing songs plus the band's impact you know the band can just transform a song to yet completely another level and it often does but the ease of Star Wars and Purple, it's walking speed. You know, I was listening to a lot of uh, Time Out of Mind at that point. And, uh, you know, I think that most of the songs on that album just start with, I'm walking, or I've been walking, or I walked. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I was kind of in the frame of mind that I got to I gotta uh, do a couple songs in, in a walking mode. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it kind of rolled off my tongue, y- you know. Would Not a Crime fall into that group of songs that you play almost every night? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, that song I have, I need to play every night, along with I Would Never Want to Be Young Again. Uh, those are the songs that, like, uncork my, you know, adrenaline capabilities after that I'm, I'm on you know even if I was sleeping 10 minutes before that you know backstage if we like you know sometimes it's just like you know flying and you pass out and you wake up and you know and it's time to rock out so but those are the songs that kind of get me completely back in the frame of mind this is what is going to be happening you know, for the next two hours. And Not a Crime is very powerful. It, it has a... The opening riffs of it are... The opening riff of it, well, the melody, is a actual traditional Romani melody. And, um, and a very kind of obscure one. This is like Romani, Romani, like private Romani uh, repertoire. That it's not one of those like beat up, you know, everybody kind of like knows that particular 
that identifies it as one of those gypsy, you know, music licks. It's a really kind of actually well-researched and thing that I sped up to the to the style of Gogol Bordello and made it into this crazy ass stumper. And then connected with the guys that in Italy, this Romani band from Italy that recorded that melody in completely different situation, like years before that. And I basically rearranged the thing, created Gogol Bordello classic out of it, then re reunited with that band and to play it together with them. And you know there was a connection with that, so it's kind of, kind of quintessential gypsy punk number, you know. I'm wondering if there's anywhere in the world that you you haven't toured. You've you've gone to South America. We know that we saw that in the documentary. You go to Europe. Obviously, you travel around the U.S. and North America. Um, are there Gogo Bordello fans everywhere in the world? Well, I mean, it's a stretch to say everywhere. I mean, everywhere where it's doable, you know. Um, you know, you know. Do you, do you play Asia? No, no, not really. I mean, no. Uh, we've definitely been to you know, Japan, Australia, you know, and and uh, we haven't been to New Zealand, for example, which is doable. Uh, but we. We've been great many times and not enough, but in, in Latin America and Central America, you know, and um, of course, Europe, the whole Mediterranean and the, you know, Turkey and um, Scandinavia and, and uh, all these pockets of Europe, Eastern Europe, obviously, you know, we've been there great many times and um and a lot of our touring actually happened there before we got on radar of like England and and the States, actually. The cool part about it is that by the time we started playing, you know, UK and uh, the band was in a kind of pretty uh, ass kicking Olympic shape, <laughs> you know, it, it looked like we had our thing pretty together at that time, you know. We already had hundreds of shows under our belt at that point. Tell us a little bit about Nikolai Gogol. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, where do we begin? Well, how did you first become aware? Yeah. Well, and it's part of, you know, it's part of uh, Ukrainian school, high school, and elementary school curriculum, actually. So it's, uh, you know, his monuments are everywhere and there's a lot of films that are based in his writings and uh, it was it's a revered classic the thing about it is that it would be like you know yeah it's mark it's it'd be like how did mark twain get in your radar you know mm -hmm. so yeah. the the thing about it that made it uh, emblematic particularly for me is was way after I left. Yeah, you know, it was one of the books that I kind of brought, brought with me, the, the Nights on the Evenings near Dikanka. It was kind of Gogol's first big uh, monumental work that kind of his debut that championed this, all these pockets of Ukrainian like mythology and history that were at the time forbidden in Russia by, you know, Russian 
Tsar and, and and then consequently kind of was always uh considered like Gogol's a very masterful smuggle of Ukrainian folklore and culture into you know just kind of jumping through these imperial hoops that were set up you know and kind of beating them because a lot of people fell in love with that and were like wow there's this whole thing that's distinctly different culture why do they even call it like part of Russia it's not Russia at all so that's what kind of through his mastery he was able to do and not only by dwelling in Ukrainian themes and kind of getting all these uh, intellectuals and European literary critics to acknowledge this particular Ukrainian culture that's very distinctly not anything else but Ukrainian but he was if you read like um literary uh, uh analysts they there are some really deep uh researches where it shows that Google was going as far as writing um using ukrainian syntaxes and particular melodisms and rich uh, uh patterns and rhythms of the speech while using you know russian words so he can get published and that's why the the whole his his whole presentation of the culture was so hypnotic once again it was so as a, as a ukrainian guy who was born and raised out of kazakh uh lineage out of ukrainian kazakh lineage and whose father was also a writer for a local uh theater uh Vertep and uh a collector of mythology i mean once again you know Gogol didn't fall out of, out of nowhere he came from a tree uh, a family tree who was highly educated and well versed in ukrainian and polish uh folklore and uh, one of the catalysts for me was that eventually i I read this whole essay that I unburied somewhere of Gogol analyzing all these Ukrainian folk songs and showing uh, how to read them and how to read them into them. And uh, it kind of put, you know, on ahead my whole understanding of Ukrainian culture. You know, it's just really blew the kind of I cracked the code of it like I wasn't taking it as for granted anymore I just kind of looked at it and it's all uh, with all these nuances and how to really understand the culture the, the role of that particular culture in this in in a in a European setting you know in the last year and a half a lot of Americans and I imagine people elsewhere around the world who had some vague awareness of Ukraine have, have learned a lot more about the country. You have this position and this platform to teach people about the Ukraine. And have you done anything to take advantage of your position to talk to people about Ukraine or educate them? Or have you found people to be curious? What's your experience been like? Um, well, luckily, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, singular person on, on the front, you know, there's actually 
quite great educators who are doing it as educators, like Timothy Snyder, you know, who's kind of a great expert, you know, or there's great jur journalists and educators like Terrell Starr, you know, of um, African-American uh, descent who are heavy Ukraine experts and are actually he's in Ukraine right now. And um, so, you know, their focus is, is like distinctly educating people because that's what they do. Yeah. Here, you know, as, yeah, you know, as a punk rocker or as an uh, entertainer or whatever, you know, other ways you can look at it, you know, you don't necessarily have uh, academic uh, cred to be perceived as such, but I think that so I think that for some people, uh, you know, Global Bordello might be their only connection to Ukraine. I mean, there's there's tons of people who are like that, you mm -hmm. know, who are for one reason or another that is their first way of having to do anything with it, you know, and and uh, of course they have. Uh, learned about it more because of us you know and uh simply because we've been encouraging people to pay attention to it and not view it as some kind of local conflict you know and uh understand that it's pretty far from being local i mean you know if you know if if if, if in, in fact it's kind of like a cop-out you know when people are talk about it like oh like they view it as some kind of there are some people who are still doing that like oh it's just like some kind of soccer game that's going on over there across the ocean and what are they doing there can they just figure it out already you know that's just a really uh appalling uh point of view because um well some of those people just simply don't have it all the ingredients in the head to be focused enough uh some of them just have different agenda. Um, some of them are, you know, worked on heavy by pro-Russian propaganda. And some of them are just yet to find out really what's up. And, and what they going to find out is that, you know, look like just several years before now, several years before the war, do you, Perhaps everybody remembers how much uh, unrest there was about these simple topics that, you know, Russian, there was Russian influence on a elections, that some things were, you know, it was like everybody's appalled about it. It's just like, do you think that it's a local conflict somewhere far away where the players of that game that you think is so far away are messing with your election? Maybe it's not so far away. So how these fucking people don't put two and two together and view it as a situation that definitely needs to be resolved with global, uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, entire world's kind of interaction and attention. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's pretty black and white to me, you know? Yeah. So... 
as we sort of wind down, I want to make sure I ask you about United Strike Back. How did that come together? Oh, yeah. Actually, thanks for bringing that up. Um, you know, one of them really kind of, listen, I'm a life punk rocker. Like, I'm a lifer, you know. And uh, that's my foundation from, I was in the band's punk band since I was 13 years old, you know, and uh, back in Ukraine and everywhere in between and now here. You know, when you were a life, life or punk rugger, it kind of goes without saying that, you know, you kind of know what it's all, if you know, you know, and that's all there is to it, you know. So over the course of years, it's almost kind of becomes like a thing in your back bucket, like it's just, and um and a lot of bands in that in in punk rock and in all the forms of music affiliated with it, gone through a similar process. Some of them kind of were still affiliated with it, but they're kind of start drifting away and you know exploring other vibes and being seen on some more eclectic bills that sometimes don't make any sense to a punk rocker. Punk rocker. However, this. When the war began, it was like a catalyst to to where where punk rock bands, new school, old school, mid school punk rock bands, kind of demonstrated their vitality like nobody else once again. And it's just kind of, to me, it was so inspiring once again. Why did we even get into this form of music, into this particular cultural movement? Why did we even went with it at the first place? Um, because there's a big difference. There's a big difference between supporting Ukraine, like you know, six months after the war, when it was kind of like things already assumed a certain direction. A lot of people were already on the side of Ukraine, but it's a lot different when you know you're the first person who sees through everything and then goes out and, you know, two days after the war has begun already, you know, puts out a song. It's called God Save Ukraine. You know, I'm talking about Sick of It All uh, from New York City. Like, there it is. It's on band camp, you know, and the lyrics are like, you know, God Save Ukraine, uh, you know, from the evil moron, you know. And it's a it's a very instant punk rock from you know Spitfire uh, approach, and yeah, in the next week, literally days after the beginning, we were already uh, getting a benefit together, benefit concert, first concert for Ukraine that happened with Patty Smith, you know Jesse Mallon, uh, you know Susanna Vega. Uh, Metasiahu, you know, so all our friends that one way or another, you know, whether they're old school, you know, icons like Patty Smith, who had a strong stance right away, that provided a, a big sense of direction, you know, to a lot of people who are who just didn't have any sense of direction. And um you know, Jello Biafra, of course, you know, and um, and uh, we put out a song with uh, Les Claypool, 
which was actually his initiative, you know. And, and you know, most of the people I just, you know, brought up, they are all one way or another affiliated with punk rock, whether they're proto-punk, uh, you know, icons like Patti Smith or kind of prog rock, punk rockers like Les Claypool, you know. Um, and, and, um, and it was just beautiful to see that, you know, once again, here we go, you know, the people who created politically edged conscious music back in the day that we listened to and aspired to and were you know, grateful to this day. Here they are again, not waiting for anybody to like, hey, can you guys whip something together here? No, they're like, you know, reach out to you. So the answer to your question, United Strike Back was the song that uh, I wrote to bring back, to bring uh, people that had that clear vision of that situation together on one track, you know, who I always particularly uh, looked up to as were kind of, you know, my, was one of my greatest inspirations, like Roger Merritt from Agnostic Front, you know, and, uh, you know, Jello Biafra, of course. Very cool. And, uh, you know, uh, Monty from Ministry. Uh, we actually recorded another track with Ministry. Um, I don't want to jump any gun, but there's a song with, <laughs> it's coming out basically. Yeah, I mean, Old Jorgensen being kind of one of my favorite uh, Sonic Maverick of all times, you know, just, you know, um, well, Trekul from Green Day is the, laid down the drums for that song, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Joe Lally from Fugazi, you know. So, once again, you know, so it was a natural, naturally uh, occurring awesomeness in a way. <laughs> it was just takes an effort to coordinate so many people but you know um, over the years I grew some producer muscle and uh you know I really enjoy those kind of collaborations when they're when they're made between people who actually know each other and know where we all coming from yeah uh that goes goes a long way for a spirited collaboration Eugene thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us um, yeah, of course. The the documentary "Scream of My Blood," um, so incredible. Um, it's one of those things you almost have to watch more than once because there's so much going on. But uh, continued uh, success. Uh, great talking yeah. with you today. Uh, bring in uh, something more current from just tag our new album in. Yeah, tell us about it. And you know, once again, the kind of the vitality of punk rock and how as a movement how it demonstrated itself in this particular situation it kind of was a uh probably probably uh one of the factors that the the, the last album that we recorded was actually kind of stripped down into uh, stripped down to quintessential elements of Google Bordello once again because we're an adventurous band, and I think that 
because we have some great arpeggio players in a band like Sergei, our violin player, you know, coming in from classical music world, always bringing in a uh, dimension of class, you know, uh, uh, classical music class. Yeah, it's a very seductive uh, element. And I think it brought us into this sinful punk rock ambitious state of mind that kind of peaked at Seekers and Finders album. You know, I think that was our sinful punk rock album that kind of uh, this oxo oxymoronic <laughs> ambition of sinful punk, it crescendoed there. And in a way, for creative reasons, for adventure reasons, and also just the, the, the rawness of the times we live in, everything kind of brought us back to this much more raw sound of, you know, punk hardcore and gist of Gogol Bordello to begin with, in a way uh, showing a very important part of its makeup. Because a lot of our fans are not really aware of like our, our history history. Like for them, it starts with Gypsy Punks, but that was already our third album. The, the albums that have that kind of, uh, you know, very, uh, quick quick gist of punk and hardcore influences they're under people radar and uh, you know making the record in particular with you know walter schreifels uh as, as a producer who is you know one of my favorite musicians that kind of unites so many different uh you know streaks of hardcore you know as a guy who's been in youth of today uh, you know, Gorilla Biscuits. Um, he, he even played in Warzone for a while. Um, then, you know, went on being Quicksand, Frontman, uh, Rival Schools. Yeah, it's just like such a vital force in, in that world. And uh, we had so much fun making this record. It was almost more like starting a band together when you were like 14 years old in a garage and had that more spirit than the, rather than like here we are seasoned rockers making producing a new record that we really know how it goes it was just like no as long as it's raw and it's exciting and uh, you know let's not mess too much with it thanks again so much for joining us it's been a great conversation yeah definitely thank you for having me yeah yeah Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.